Good morning. I'm privileged to be able to share with you today. Carmen, thank you for leading us and your team. Thank you for including that first song, which to someone of my vintage is a contemporary song, not an old one. His love endures forever. I don't know if you know that that song is very, very scriptural, biblical. It's Psalm 136. A psalm of, of 26 verses, I believe it is. Every verse ends, His love endures forever. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Um, I, I'm looking forward to the October uh, marriage, family emphasis that is going to be conducted here across many fronts in many ministries. Uh, our small group is going to, I think, try to do something along that line as well. Um, I, I think that video really nailed it. Uh, I got the point. Did, did you? There's a story in John's gospel of a serious case of misplaced priorities. The passage that Pastor Will read earlier also contains a wonderful example of the beauty and the grace that Jesus brought to the world as he ministered to people. The misplaced priorities that I mentioned are, are reflected in, in the attention that the religious establishment paid to the details of the law under which they lived. It was the law of Moses uh, that regulated uh, many areas, uh, every area of their life, basically. And laws are good, but sometimes we do strange things with our laws. I, I have some examples of strange laws that, at one point at least, were very important to the people in charge. I read something the other day about obsolete laws that are still on the books. They may be in communities often or in uh, state uh, law codes, and sometimes these are called fossil laws, not laws about fossils. They are fossils, and there are hundreds if not thousands of these kinds of laws around the country, and they're, they're kind of like the dust balls in the corners of our legal system. One state legislature proposed cleaning up all of these, and it turned out that it was going to cost them so much in clerical time uh, that it was, it was not worth it. It was just easier to ignore them and not enforce those laws. Here are a couple of examples. In Louisiana, it's illegal to rob a bank and then shoot at the bank teller with a water gun. I guess you better bring real bullets if you're going to do that. In Indiana, liquor stores cannot sell milk. You don't want to confuse your customer about what they're drinking. In Florida, if an elephant is left tied to a parking meter, he's got to pay. He can't, uh, he can't park there for free. Um, I guess Ringling Brothers must have been busted trying to park for free. Um, not only can that elephant not park for free in Florida, but in Natchez, Mississippi, he can't drink beer. I mean, who wants a drunken elephant coming down Main Street? Um, in Iowa, one-armed piano players have to perform for free. You don't want to pay for a halfway performance. Texas, the entire Encyclopedia Britannica is banned in Texas because it contains a formula for making beer at home. 
In Florida, men are banned from appearing in public in any kind of strapless gown. I think that probably ought to be a law everywhere. <laughs> One more. In Oklahoma, dogs have to have a permit signed by the mayor in order to congregate in groups of three or more on private property. No impromptu canine conventions in Oklahoma. You know what? These are real laws. And I'm sure they were all enacted for some specific reason that was considered important enough that it would be legislated at that time. And it illustrates a human tendency to major in the minors. And we're going to see a biblical example of that this morning. So we're doing this study out of John's Gospel. John is perhaps best described as the Gospel of Belief. That's John's focus. What is saving faith? How did Jesus introduce that and become uh, the focus of that? John writes his gospel a little differently from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that he describes uh, the life of Jesus in more of a thematic perspective than the others. And he states that his reason for writing in this way in John chapter 20, verse 31, a very important passage, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so that means that everything in John and in today's story also must be read and can only be understood in the light of the cross and the resurrection and man's need to place his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's John. The story that we'll look at today in John chapter 5 is actually the story of a healing. And we, uh, but we tend to look at this healing in kind of an isolated way that misses the larger lessons that John is teaching. It's very easy to isolate verses of Scripture or individual stories and miss the big picture. But you know what? One of the most important principles of hermeneutics or understanding, interpreting the Bible, is that Scripture interprets Scripture, adds to. And as we read more and more Scripture, we learn more and more as it sheds light on others other passages of Scripture. Um, every story John records is part of a bigger picture, in other words. And John chapter 5 is an unbelievably rich story. Uh, I, I told Jack, Pastor Jack earlier that there are probably months' worth of sermons in just this one chapter, if you're really going to reach down into its depths. And I'm only going to be able to touch a couple of the high points so somewhat in that spirit of, of connectedness within John, um, I want to describe the, the broader context. Uh, John's gospel builds this connectedness or thematic flow, and the dominant theme that he's building is this theme of belief. How does one come to saving faith? And so John answers that question in some of the vignettes that he writes about. In chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. What does that show us? That when we come up empty through our religious attempts, he provides what we could not. In chapter 3, <clears throat> Jesus teaches Nicodemus, one of the teachers of the Jews, one of the leaders, that the only way you can be a part of the kingdom of God is by being reborn or born from above, born again, irrespective of your rank in the religious establishment or the system. In chapter 4, he meets this woman at the well in Samaria, a morally bankrupt woman. And the place and the setting and people were despised by the Jews, the Samaritans. And he gives her his living water 
in his own words that leaps up in her to eternal life, showing that salvation is available to anyone, anywhere. And then also in chapter 4, Jesus heals a royal official's son from a distance, showing that salvation is by faith in Jesus as a person. Simply take him at his word. Now, the story of the healing of the man in chapter 5 is a story with truth on a couple of levels, several levels. Level one is that the man is healed. He receives Jesus' miraculous healing work as a demonstration that Jesus has all the power in the universe over nature, over all physical things. But there's another level of truth in this story, is that this is a parable about salvation. But this parable, interestingly enough, does not emphasize faith. At least the way we would expect that it would. The royal official's son in chapter 4 was healed because of faith. This man who was healed in this story had no evident faith. He did not come to Jesus. Jesus came to him. Jesus takes the initiative. This man didn't even know who Jesus was till later. And so the story, I think, is that salvation, spiritual healing, symbolized by the physical healing, is grace. It's all grace. It's by grace. God's choice to take the initiative to extend to us the healing of our soul. So this story is a parable in action in that direction. It's important that you remember that as we go through it. Now, there's another sub-theme that becomes a dominant theme theme that begins in chapter 5, and that's the theme of the opposition to Jesus. And that theme runs from here on throughout the whole rest of the gospel and the life of Jesus on earth, and it culminates in the crucifixion. And so John includes this story in part to explain how that opposition starts. It really ramps up. This is where... um, The pushback by the religious establishment in Jerusalem against Jesus is jump-started. So the story in John chapter 5, first of all, paints a painful picture of our condition, verses 1 through 7. John describes the setting for this picture. It's important to notice the details. They're in there for a reason. Every detail is in here for a reason. So I want to spend just a minute or so on this setting, verses 1 and 2. Here's how it goes. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. There is, now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. We don't know exactly which of the seven annual feasts of Israel this was. If it were important for us to know, that detail would be in there. But there were three that, were, that required all able-bodied males to go to Jerusalem to, to attend. This pool is called Bethesda, a word that comes pretty close to meaning the house of grace. Now remember that as we go on. Fairly recently, uh, archaeologists discovered this pool. Uh, they didn't think it existed, and, the, and some thought that John was making something up, but they found out where it is and discovered it. Um, And apparently this was a spring-fed pool where invalids waited their turn to step into these mysteriously stirred-up waters that were supposed to possess healing power. The five porches, or covered colonnades, 
were probably built to provide some shelter for those either lying beside the pool hoping to be healed or for others who would use the pool for other purposes. We're also told that this is near the Sheep Gate. That's a detail that's important. It was named that because this is the gate near the temple grounds through which the sheep destined for the temple sacrifices were brought. How appropriate is it that Jesus would heal there? Himself, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist identified him in chapter 1. So this is the setting for what the text paints as a pretty painful or pathetic picture. It's important to notice that verses 3 through 7 give us a really clear picture of what life is like without Christ. First of all, there was a large number of people who were sick, helpless, and hopeless. Verses 3 through 5. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, blind, lame, paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. I said earlier that this is a, a parable in action. The condition of these people is a picture of human depravity. This is us, described in physical terms. Blind, lame, paralyzed. We're all blind. In chapter 1, the whole theme of darkness and the light that comes with Jesus is introduced, and, and we see the darkness that this blindness produces. Verse 5 of chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That's us. We're, we're lame. We cannot move with purpose. In fact, we're not only lame, we're paralyzed. And so here around this pool is a huge crowd of people who cannot help themselves. They're only going to get better if somebody helps them or someone does something for them, what they can't do for their, themselves. And if Jesus doesn't heal, they're going to stay in their condi condition. And that's what the Apostle Paul means when he says in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 6 and following, he unpacks this whole idea. Verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Paralyzed. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When God looks at the human race, what does he see? Something like verse 3. People who are sick, helpless, counting on false cures. Spiritually, we are born blind, lame, paralyzed. And so if the physical description of this crowd represents our helplessness, the condition of the man that Jesus encounters describes our hopelessness. It doesn't say he'd been lying there for 38 years, but he had suffered from this condition for 38 years. And by this time, all he had left was this pitifully thin possibility that maybe he could get into the water, into this pool, and be healed. After 38 years, still hadn't happened. picture gets even more pathetic. Not only were they sick, a great number of disabled people, including this man who suffered his disability 38 years, but they were superstitious. Verse 7. I hope I don't confuse you with this. Just listen carefully. I, we need to understand what's going on in this part of the passage. The man says, Sir, verse 7, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. What on earth is he talking about? Well, I've got to explain something that I hope won't be too difficult to digest. Most of you will have NIV or ESV Bibles or other translations. And as you're reading uh, this passage, you will 
you will read verse 3, describing this great number of people around the pool. And when you finish verse 3, the next verse is verse 5, identifying a particular person there. Well, what happened to verse 4? There's more to verse 3, and there is a verse 4 in the Old King James Version, and it describes the people lying around the pool waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Well, so here's the situation. You realize that from the New Testament time till about the 16th century, the development of the printing press, all scriptures were copied by hand. And generally, that was done with amazing degrees of accuracy. And in this case, the oldest, most complete, and the best manuscripts of the Greek text that we have do not contain this verse 4 and the latter part of verse 3. Presumably because it wasn't in there originally. In other words, John didn't write it. He never wrote it. What happened is that a, some copier, copyist somewhere, added this supposed fact later to explain this man's complaint that he couldn't get in when the water was stirred. It probably started out as a marginal note and then somewhere in the transmission of the text got slipped into the main part of the text. And the reason that this was almost certainly not in the original manuscripts is because it's not true. But the people thought it was true. Apparently this was a spring-fed pool that sometimes surged as it received water from springs in the hills around. Or there were minor earthquakes, and so things would shake, and all of a sudden the water was stirred out up. And uh, maybe somebody felt better one time after they'd been in the pool when that happened, and, and uh, so it developed that reputation. And, and they developed this mystical explanation of the angel. It had to be somebody stirring the pool, doing that in the same way that millions of people visit the supposed healing waters of Lourdes in southern France. They go to Tlacote in Mexico, where often 10,000 people a day hope to get some of the mysteriously miraculous healing water there. There's a steady clientele at the hot springs of, in various places in our own country because they supposedly have medicinal qualities. But I just don't see Jesus healing in this way in his whole ministry in any way that remotely resembles this picture. But can you imagine, given the superstitions, which I would call it, of that ability of the water, uh, can you imagine the mob scene around the pool when the water begins to move? As maybe hundreds of people are kicking and clawing and shoving as they stumble and scoot and drag themselves over others who are less able to move so they can be the first one in the pool. And, and so the one person who is the strongest, most aware, and most capable would be the only one healed if it ever did happen, and it would be a bizarre case of the survival of the fittest of the unfit. So here are people who do what many of us do. We trust something for our spiritual healing that cannot help us. Notice that in verse 7, he says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. In other words, if I just had a little help, I could get out of this condition. The lost sinner does not need help. He needs healing. 
In our human depravity, we look for what can never help. In Jesus' day, the law of Moses could not bring the ultimate healing that they people needed. It was good, but it had a limited value. I believe that the water of this pool represents, in this picture, the religious system of that place and day, which has no power to heal. Now, this picture isn't complete until we see that not only is there sickness and superstition, this man may very well have been satisfied with the status quo, verses 6 and 7. The helplessness of this man kind of draws Jesus to him. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him a really strange question. Do you want to get well? Of course he wants to get well. Why do you think I'm laying around this pool all day? But I think the question really is this. Do you really want to change? Do you really want your life to be changed? Do you understand what change is like? Do you understand how different your life would be if you were healed? And you know what? The answer that we give isn't always yes. I wonder, and I, I know I'm doing some speculating here, but just bear with me a little, cut me a little slack. Maybe this man needed to be confronted by the fact that if he was healed, he couldn't make a living begging anymore. If he's healed, he ventures out into the unknown. He can no longer depend on others. There's a risk to being healed. How often do we learn to live with our dysfunction, even in some cases preferring it to the unknown changes that would come with being healed of an addiction or a relationship pattern or something? Where I am seems normal, and maybe normal is painful, but at least it's safe. It's the known. This is my mud puddle. I know every corner. of. I don't know that I like it here, but I'm not sure I like what's out there. And there's another little piece to the puzzle, and we see that in his response. Did you see that he doesn't really answer the question, do you want to be healed? What does he do? Instead, he complains about uh, the injustice of the system and the lack of compassion. Sir, verse 7, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's basically saying, I, I think I'd love to be healed, but I can't because no one's doing anything for me. This is, this is the cry of the perpetual victim. It's not my fault. It's everyone else's fault for getting into the pool ahead of me. It's the fault of the people who won't help me. It's a system. We frequently deal with our own weaknesses and sins the same way. We live with a victim mentality. And our society has been telling us more clearly year by year that we don't have to take responsibility for our actions. We can blame somebody else. We should. We enjoy our victimhood sometimes. That there was something like this going on in this man's mind and heart is clear from Christ's later conversation with him. Jesus tracked him down in the temple district there, and he said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Some Bible scholars suggest that this man was at the temple because this was the place where beggars were most likely to go. 
Decades ago, um, Freudian psychology began to influence our culture. And this is a complex thing, but I'll, I'll make a simplistic statement that I think is true. But Freudian psychology basically says that every wrong action that you take, you can blame on things that happened to you in your early childhood. You don't have to accept responsibility. You're the victim. And so we look to the wrong source to heal us inside. Instead of looking at God, we look to others. If I'm in financial trouble, instead of turning to God to change something in my heart about my habits or my priorities, I, I go get a better job that pays more, or I play the lotto, or whatever. If I've got marriage problems, I want God to change my spouse. Do I really want to be healed if it means I alone depend on God alone to heal me? And the question this incident raises is this, do I really want to submit myself to God alone by faith alone for my eternal salvation when I think that it ought to be provided for me by a church or a religious system? Well, this is, a, this is the picture of people who are desperately sick inside and are looking to the wrong place to be eternally healed. But there's more, of course, and, and uh, what we see next is a puzzling pronouncement verse 8 in the beginning of verse 9. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, notice that uh, there's, there's no indication that he healed anyone else there by the pool. Jesus just picked out this guy. And that's why I said this, this picture parable at the pool of Bethesda, the house of grace, is a picture of grace. Jesus went to him while he was sick. And I, I'm convinced that this story is intended by John to be an introduction to everything that comes after it in the rest of chapter 5. It's a long chapter. Notice what John says in verse 21 when the religious authorities challenge him they want to talk about Sabbath regulations. That's, that phrase at the end of verse 9 is really kind of the hinge on which the whole chapter turns. And it was the Sabbath. That's what they want to challenge him about. He wants to talk about the real issues, the person's eternal relationship with God. So he says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Jesus was pleased to go to this man and give him his health as a picture of what he does when he gives eternal life. Just as this gift of healing is a gift of pure grace, so our eternal salvation, your eternal salvation, is God's gift of pure grace. One writer said, in the Christian life, nothing Nothing at all can be purchased at the do-it-yourself shop. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus did not say. He didn't say to him, you know what, I'm going to help you get in the pool. Or, you hang on, persevere, keep coming, one day your time will come. Or, he didn't say, let's make you a little more comfortable. I'll bring some flowers and we'll maybe get you a little nicer mat and bring a couple of meals in. Those things are all good and well, but they will not bring this man what he needs. 
He thinks he needs to get into the water, use the system. But what he needs is what Jesus gives him, healing. So Jesus tells him to do the one thing he could not do. Pick up your mat and walk. Now notice that when God gives a command, he gives the power to obey it. All of a sudden, the atrophied muscles are whole. Whatever it was that made it impossible for him to walk are restored. He picks up his mat, stands up, and goes. And his obedience to that is his sudden birth of faith, faith that God gives him, that Jesus gives him, and he obeys. Do you ever wonder why Jesus made a point of telling him to pick up his mat, then walk? I mean, why didn't Jesus say, just get up and walk? Could he have done that? And would the man have walked? Yeah. There's more. I love the way old Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan put it. He told him to pick up the mat in order to make no provision for a relapse. You know, I would guess that a little mat-sized piece of real estate by this pool was a high-value location. He could have said, well, you know, I'm going to leave my mat here in case this doesn't last. I might need it tomorrow. Here's a life lesson that can come out of that. If God heals you or delivers you from something, don't make any provision to go back. Pour out the alcohol. Throw away the drugs. Get rid of the Internet connection if necessary. Burn your bridges behind you. Say no to the friends who've been part of your problem. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And he also tells the guy, walk. Don't expect to be carried. Stand on the power of God and get on the path of following Christ. You know, most of us in this room have, have been healed in that core healing, which is our eternal salvation. We've been given eternal life. We've been made right with God and, and, and yet there, that healing then has, God designs it so that throughout the rest of our life in a process that the Bible calls sanctification, then the rest of our life gets healed in all the little corners where that core healing gives us the opportunity and the ability then to confront those things. Now there's one more key part of the story uh, that, we, that we have to acknowledge in that that is this, that there's a powerful protest that comes out of this, the end of verse 9 through 47. And we, we can't look at all of this section, but I want to point out that John makes the point that this had happened on a Sabbath. I said at the beginning that John records this incident to explain the opposition to Christ, and it all centers on the Sabbath. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Now, he, notice he's st still uh, not taking any responsibility, um, but nothing was his fault. This man made me do this. Uh, so then they ask, verse 12, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? They didn't ask, who healed you? They're all focused on the mat, not this amazing miracle. Who told you to disobey one of our core regulations in life? The Sabbath police showed up with the sirens blaring. 
red lights flashing. So this man has no idea who it is that told him this, but Jesus later meets him again, and he finds out uh, who he is, and he turns him into the Jews. And so after they discover who had healed him, we read in verses 16 through 18, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, the core of the Jewish law, according to the religious establishment, was the Sabbath. It was the one fence that kept them separate from, separate from the Gentile world around them. Now, the Sabbath law was given by God to Moses to give to the people, but they had encrusted it. And, and that law is basically, you shall do no work on the Sabbath. It's holy. God rested on the Sabbath in the creation. Just don't do any work. But they had encrusted it with so many petty regulations that it got ridiculous. The theologians then had discovered 39 different major ways the Sabbath could be violated. You know what number 39 was? You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. But then they parsed these 39 down to amazingly intricate details. For example, you're not supposed to carry goods on the Sabbath. If you unknowingly have something in your pocket and discover it, you have several options. You, you, you take it out, but not by lift, going in and lifting it out. That would be work, but you can kind of turn your pocket inside out and let it fall on the floor. Drop it out. If the item's valuable that you've got in your pocket, you can ask a Gentile to watch it for you. Or you can carry it, but only a short distance, and you have to put it down, rest, pick it back up, and go again. Or you could relay it between you and a fellow Israelite. Or here, here's a curious part. You could tie it to your shoelace so that you weren't carrying it, but it was still coming with you. I'm not making this up. It's the way it was, and worse. Women were not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath, because you might find a white hair among your black hair, and you would pull it out, and you would be reaping. You cannot reap on the Sabbath. And this is ridiculous, but it was the norm, and I could give you hundreds of examples like that. And that's why their blood pressure went through the top of their pointy little caps when they saw this guy carrying his bed. This is an amazing thing. The Pharisees had greater concern for proper procedures than a person's problems. Legalities and tradition counted more than God's sovereign work of grace in a desperately ill person's life. So you can see why I see the story as a case of majoring on the minors, a case of badly misplaced priorities. Because they were so caught up in the procedures, the system, the legalities, they missed the Messiah and decided to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath as he did on several occasions, and I think deliberately, to confront them. So what happens when someone is able to back away from the religious system and just hear Jesus? Verses 24 and 25 tell us, I tell you the truth that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will someday have, may have, has eternal life, and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Not he may or he eventually will. He has already crossed 
over from death to life. If you trusted Christ as your Savior, in an honest, believing act of faith, this describes your situation. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has not come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Eternal life becomes the possession of the believer at the moment of exception. In this future judgment, when the dead will hear the voice of God, God will confirm the spiritual healing that has already occurred as a part of receiving eternal life. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, eternal life has already begun in you. You've already crossed over from death to life, and you receive that gift because the Lord Jesus Christ chose to give it to you as a gift of pure, undeserved grace. And it should come as no surprise that sometimes religious people don't get it. It's too simple to just believe Jesus and pick up your bed and walk. There's got to be more to it. We've got to be able to get into the pool, the system that's been offered us. It can't be that easy. We want a system to immerse ourselves in so that we can feel like we've done something. Theologian Alexander Schmemann writes in his journals, religion fascinates, it's entertaining, it has everything that is sought after by a certain type of person, aesthetics, mystery, the sacred, a feeling of one's importance and exclusive depth, etc. That kind of religion is not necessarily faith. So here's the thing for us today. I've got a, a question and a challenge and a small biblical assignment. Most of us here are saved. We've been born again. We've received that ultimate healing that transforms the core of who we are in our relationship with God. And as I said, the process of sanctification takes the implications of that into the corners of our lives. Many of us still have our mats down on some little piece of the real estate of our hearts and lives where we're trusting in some superstition or some technique or some person we're hoping for some kind of magic to happen to resolve an area of our lives that has not yet been healed. So here's the question. What's your lameness today? Where are you lame? Pornography addiction? Weakness? Outbreaks of anger against your spouse or others close to you? A relationship that doesn't honor God? A dishonest business practice? A focus on money or possessions that's robbing God of what's really his. Some area where you're saying no to God in his will. Where's the mat parked that Jesus would look at and say to you, do you really want to be healed? Pick it up. Walk away. Be healed. I urge you to have the courage to acknowledge that and confess that. Here, Grace, we don't have magic answers for you, but the leaders and others here can help you with any of those things with which you may be struggling. So here's our challenge. Much of the population of Newton and the surrounding communities is sitting on their little mats depending on some long-standing system of religion or psychology or cultural self-medication to fix them. Many of them don't even pretend to connect with a church. We, when we started planning churches some years ago, we researched our communities and discovered that probably two-thirds of the people in Newton and most communities around us uh, never on a given Sunday morning go to church. 
we have the opportunity and more than that, the mandate, the calling to do what Jesus did, to go to them and introduce them to Jesus and enfold and embrace them in the rich fellowship of the church family where they'll be healed by the living water of God and then nurtured and equipped to serve him. And that's why we're here. That's why this church and other gospel-focused, Jesus-following churches are here, not to offer a superior system, but to offer the life and love of Jesus. Please don't come here Sunday to Sunday just to settle back and enjoy the comforts of a good little church. You're here to celebrate your life in Christ, engage with the Word, encourage and be encouraged, and then leave and engage your world with the gospel. I said I had a little assignment for you There's, uh, that would be very profitable. There's another miraculous healing in John chapter 9. This is chapter 5. In John 9, read that story. Compare the two healings. How are they different? How are they the same? What do they each say about how we approach the illnesses or the failures and unbelief in, your, in our world? How you engage your world will be affected by what you learn. Father, thank you for your word. It's living, it's powerful, it's active. It goes to the depths of our being, to every corner, the dark corners of our hearts. And I know that for most of us, there are some little places where we're still staking out some little piece of real estate. We put our mats down, we hang out there. We may not even want to be healed if it comes right down to it. I pray that you transform us in the same way that you transformed this man. And that the message of the God who is bigger than all of the religious traditions and systems through his Son and through his Spirit, thank you that that message is ours to proclaim, and it is, it is powerful. Thank you for teaching us about Jesus and about his mastery over all things and his power in our lives today. We pray in his name. Amen.